He has been a meditator since 1970 and has a master's degree in Buddhist studies. He teaches regularly at several Bay Area Dharma groups and is active in bringing meditation and Dharma to prisons. He's a co-founder of the Sati Center for Buddhist Studies. He's recently completed an 11th month intensive meditation retreat at the Forest Refuge in Massachusetts. So I have a topic in mind to talk about today, but uh, first I want to take just a few minutes and see if uh, anyone had any questions about meditation practice or any Dharma questions. So there'll be, uh, we'll have some time uh, at the end for some discussion either around what came up in the talk or if you have any other kind of questions that come up, you'll have a chance at the, at the end. I don't know much about uh, brain science, but I've done a little bit of reading recently. And so I hope I'll get this right. There's basically these three kind of parts of the brain. Some of you know this a lot better than I do, so I might screw it up a little bit. But basically, there's these three parts, and there's the um, reptilian part of the brain, which is kind of the most primitive, and that's it handles a lot of the autonomic functions, keeping the breathing regulated in the heart, and um, a lot of things that are not done on the conscious level. So that's why someone can be what we call brain dead, but the body can still stay alive. That's that reptilian part of the brain that's handling all that, those functions. That was like Terry Schiavo was, you know, the reptilian brain was keeping all that going. And then around that is this next part, which is the limbic brain, which is kind of all the mammals have, have this limbic part of the brain and a lot of the feeling level of life is on that emotional feeling level. And then around that is the uh, cortical part of the brain. And that's the logic and reasoning and where us as humans have these, you know, the big cerebral cortex part. And um, on the limbic level, it turns out as human beings, and actually I guess all mammals are like this, that... uh, we're just deeply wired to be connected with other beings. It's just, it's not even conscious, it's really deeply wired in, which is why for newborns, attachment with the parent, I guess mostly the mother, or maybe it's both parents, is so critical. There's this, they call it limbic resonance, where this this function is happening where both the, the, the baby and the parent are coming into this, each are kind of affecting the others. There's this communication that happens on levels that it's not even, we're not even aware of probably most of it. Uh, signals going back and forth, so they come into some kind of resonance with each other, and it's, it's crucial. And it's known, you know, that, that infants can die if you, you give them everything they need, you know, food and shelter and everything. But if they just don't have the connection, the contact, they can die. So it just goes to show, you know, because in Buddhism we talk about non-attachment, right? 
And yet, and I want to talk about that some, but yet, how do we hold that given how just profoundly wired we are to be attached and to be connected with others? You know, um, all of us are, you know, there's a range of how, of, to the extent people like to be connected and attached. So some people tend to be a little more mm, hermit types maybe. And others really just live for connections and might have lots of friends and that's just all they're doing. And there's a whole range in between there that we all fall in somewhere. But I think for all of us, to some degree, that connection with people, whether it's one-on-one or just being out. I mean, here we all are together as a group now. You know, each of us could have gone off on our own to practice and meditate and maybe read a book instead of hearing a Dharma talk or whatever. But we came here for, you know, probably lots of different reasons. There's something about just being with a group and connecting to honor. There's a uh, well-known story about the Dalai Lama where there was some meeting, I forgot exactly what it was, but of some Western, I think, teachers... This was several years ago, and um, at one point, some of the women were talking about some of the difficulties and challenges that they had as uh, women. I guess they were monastics, uh, where they weren't getting enough support like the men, just how painful, difficult it was. And the Dalai Lama wept. He wept. He wasn't so... He wasn't aloof. He wasn't disconnected. He was so there with what happened and he, had, and he felt and he wept. So I bring these up because um, last week I spoke with someone who had been in a relationship for 11 years and then suddenly without warning her partner left her. Just like that wasn't as if they had been um, having troubles for... I mean, they had, she told me they had had their troubles, but you know, it wasn't like they were working on it and you, know, you can see the relationship was falling apart and it's not a surprise or, or they'd been in therapy. It wasn't like that. He just up and left after 11 years. And so she naturally was in a lot of pain and suffering. She still really loved this guy a lot. And it had been some, some months have gone by so she wasn't, I guess, in the worst of the pain, but it was still very, very painful. So that was one whole, you know, intense level of suffering that she was going through. I mean, naturally. And then on top of it, she was really critical and judging herself because she had this idea that she's supposed to be unattached and not having these feelings. And she was saying, well, isn't that the Buddhist teachings? And she was really struggling. There was a whole nother extra second level of suffering piled on top of the first. You know, she's not doing the practice and she's not a Buddhist and just all this stuff. And she had this concept of how it should be. And it's true, this idea, this word of non-clinging gets used a lot. It's a big deal. Right? And we talk about being non-attached, being dispassionate. Sometimes the word disenchantment is used. 
And sometimes these can have, I think, a little bit of a negative connotation to be disenchanted, right? Maybe I'd had some idealism and then I see the truth and now I'm kind of you know, deflated or let down because I'm disenchanted. But if you actually look at the meaning of the words, I don't, you know, there's not, there doesn't have to be this negative uh, connotation. Because what does it mean to be dispassionate? So when we're, so to be passionate, so if we're caught in the passions, which is something, you know, we say we want, but really we tend to be kind of then swept away by the intensity of it, which might be, might feel great and be very pleasant, but where we tend to lose our balance or our perspective. If the passions are strong, we tend to really be swept away. So to be dispassionate is actually just talking about finding a place. It doesn't mean we cut off our feeling, but we don't get swept away. We're not so caught you know, at the effect of the passions. And what is it to be disenchanted? It just means to be not enchanted. And, you know, in fairy tales, in all the fairy tales, you know, someone ha- it gets a spell on them and they become enchanted. And they then they, they are caught, they can't see clearly what's going on. They're lost in, a, in some kind of illusion of the enchantment. And then when the spell is broken, the evil spell is broken, right, they're no longer enchanted. And so to think of becoming disenchanted doesn't have to have that sense of, you know, uh, disconnected or, or, you know, I'm just off in the cave and I have no feeling or connected or I become numb or there's no, there's no aliveness happening. It just means I'm freed from the enchantment. So I can, I'm seeing things just more directly and clearly. It's true in this woman's case that I was talking about. I think it's important to say that, yes, she is suffering because of attachment. That is what's going on. It's not a judgment, but it is true. If she didn't have any attachment, if she wasn't clinging, there wouldn't be any suffering. So it is true that we're seeing in that case the first noble truth in action right there. So we need to be aware of that, right? Right. Um, but all of us, I look around, I don't see any monks or nuns here. We all are living in the world in some fashion or other. And so each of us will have our own stories. I'm making these general statements. They won't necessarily all apply to everyone. But for all of us, to whatever, in whatever way and to whatever degree, we have people we care about in our lives, family, loved ones, friends, some kind of connections, we've all, it may not be a conscious choice, but we've all decided, consciously or unconsciously, that that's important to us and that it's worth it and it's something that we care about, right? I'm married, I have a daughter, you know, I'm not, I don't want to throw that away, right? And I, you know, to me, the Dharma is really, in some sense, it's like my whole life. And yet at the same time, and so, you know, I try to practice, uh, you know, there's this liberation through non-clinging. But I have to tell you, all it takes is for my wife, when I come home, <laughs> to be in pain, I'm in pain. All it takes is for my daughter to call up and say, Dad, I'm suffering. I'm suffering. 
that's how it is. That's how it is for us. We have to honor that as human beings. That is deeply, limbically wired into us. So I don't think we're being asked to stop being human and to not have our experience. Right? I mean, I think most of us can see that um, for this person who was in a lot of pain after a relationship of 11 years and then the person just ups and leaves, that it's absurd to think that you're not going to be in a lot of pain. A lot of pain. And so we have to know when those things happen, we're going to suffer. Okay? To the extent we have connections and attachments, if we want intimacy and love and all of these friendships and everything, when the inevitable loss comes, we're already setting the conditions for some suffering to come. Now, we've decided that's worth it to us. You know, even the monastics... It's not very many who are literally living as hermits. There are some who do, and they're just living in caves or off in the woods or whatever. But most are, they too are living in communities. There's some reason why they come to communities. We use, you know, one of the three refuges is Sangha, right? So we need to honor and respect that, is really what I'm coming to. And then, yes, I think we should practice, you know, Dharma teachings of freeing ourselves from hatred, greed, and delusion, um, coming to more equanimity, which is more of a balanced perspective, so we're not so caught in clinging. And I think we all find that as we... uh, you know, live our Dharma lives and as we cultivate these qualities, that more and more of our experience and of ourselves and our lives we're able to hold with some sense of equanimity so that things and areas in our lives where we're used to maybe really get caught and struggle a lot, um, we actually can be present with and in a way that's, that's uh, quite at peace so we don't get jerked around by things so much. Right? We all, can all probably look back and, and see areas in our lives where, oh yeah, you know, that's, I, boy, I used to really struggle around this, but now I am freer than I used to be. I, I can't be with this more. I'm not jerked around by it so much. So we can see that to the extent we can let go of, of clinging more, we are more um, at peace. So hopefully we would want to continue to work in those ways. And what we find is is that the circle widens, it's ever widening to contain more and more of our of our own being and of our experience that we can work with with mindfulness and equanimity. And there's a whole range of experiences that go outside the circle. The circle hasn't widened enough yet to contain them. And it's going to be too much for us when that happens, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. We're not going to be able to work with it. Right? When the you know, 11-year 
partner just is gone. You come home. I don't get the details, but I had this image. You know, you come home and there's just a note or something. Hopefully, it wasn't that bad, but you know, it's going to be too much. And in those times, we're going to suffer, and we need to bring in a lot of the compassion. And we need to just get through the best we can in the times when the experience is too much for us to be able to work with. And in the times when we can work with it, even if it's quite unpleasant, well then, that's a different story. Then we really need to be able to just come face to face with our experience, watch the reactions in the mind, really see how we can just be with this and allow that, you know, just, just the unfolding you know, moment by moment of, of, of our experience there. So that's the last piece that I want to uh, talk about before we open it up if, for some discussion. During the times when we suffer, to the extent we can, I think it's important to try and start noticing um, not just the suffering itself, but 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 what happens in the mind? A big shift for me in my practice came. It took a lot of years, and I'm not still I'm still not perfect at it, but a big shift came when rather than automatically, reflexively pushing away my suffering when the unpleasant came and automatically coming into no, not this, not this. You know, I'm reminded of a, of a retreat. I sat many years ago. Some of you have sat at Vajrapani, which is a retreat that Gil sit, teaches with John Travis and Mary Orr every year. I love that retreat. I haven't sat it for a lot of years. It's at um, a Tibetan center in the Santa Cruz Mountains. I think this was maybe when it first started 15 years ago. And I remember I had... Um, so there's the meditation hall. I call it the Gampa. It's sort of down in this area. And then there's this area come up a trail. And it's only maybe two minutes away, but it's just over a little hill. And um, I had my tent in a place where I was kind of between these trees and I didn't see anyone. And I, and I was sort of felt very isolated. And I got there and I was all excited. I was going to sit a 10-day retreat. And um, the... Um, the sun started going down, which sometimes, you know, that can be, if I'm going to have a melancholy time, somehow that uh, twilight time can can trigger it off. And then um, I heard the bell ringing off in the distance, this kind of mournful, wistful, I don't know, kind of sound. And I was lonely up on my, and, and suddenly this wave of just loneliness just came over me. I hadn't even, you know, I had the whole 10 days looming in front of me. And I just thought, oh no, not this. <laughs> Anything, but I just don't want it to be this. And for about a day and a half, it was that. <laughs> I just had a lot of, it was just coming up, you know, and this can happen, as many people here of you know. And if you're new to retreats, at some, if you do them, you'll, you'll find out, you know, in your own way that what can happen, not always, is that. As we stop, especially in the beginning sometimes, but of course it can happen at any point, is we start to slow down. And sometimes there's kind of this cleaning out process that can happen and a lot of our emotional, psychological stuff can come up. And this, depending on what happens, not always, but a lot of times it can just wash through and then we can kind of settle down. That's what tends to happen for me. And then I settled down, it was fine. 
And I was, then the rest of the retreat was, was great and I was had a lot of peace. But it was a dependent kind of peace because it was dependent on not having that lonely feeling arise. Right? So that's one level of peace where we don't have these difficulties arising. And actually, as we develop strong concentration, it can sort of temporarily um, cut right past a lot of that stuff or suppress a lot of that stuff too. There's a whole other level of peace, which is not dependent on the difficulties either being there or not being there. But it's the level of peace that just can fully be awake to and allow just our experience to unfold. And one of the things you find, uh, especially one of the beauties of going on longer retreats, is it's not only because you can cultivate these meditative states, which is, which is important, but more than that is it's, you're there for so long that you, know, you just get to see all the ups and downs and all the pleasant and the, all the unpleasant. And it's finding that uh, equanimous place or that place of peace that's, that's kind of underneath all of it. So that was a big shift for me in my own practice to get to a point where you know, when, the, when you're in these meditative states and it's all beautiful and profound, you don't just get all caught up and swept away like, oh yeah, this is really it. And when the difficulties, the despair, the loneliness, the depression, whatever comes, it's, you don't push it away, but you, can, you still feel it and it's unpleasant. It doesn't like transform into pleasant because you're in some kind of meditative state. No, but but we can just see we're not so caught at it and there's another place that can rest at peace. And so what can happen is, you know, we talk about coming to a liberation from this word dukkha, which is a big important word in the Buddhist teachings, which we generally translate as suffering. It means a lot more than that. But for now we can use the word suffering. We want to come to some freedom from dukkha, from suffering. We want to come to know it, understand it, to gain some wisdom around it. How do you come to know it or understand it? Well, you have to experience something to come to know it and understand it. So we can start to shift our relationship to dukkha when it comes to the difficulties. And just to know, oh, this is dukkha. This is what it feels like. And to really, and to let ourselves feel it. We're not trying to search after it. And we all know we don't need to search after it. There's plenty of opportunities, right? Even in the best, best of, you know, it's funny, you go meditate at a place like Spirit Rock or like the Forest Refuge, which I love at Barry, Massachusetts. Some of you have been there. You know, the rooms are nice, pretty new. It's not funky or anything. I mean, it's nice. Food's pretty good. Plenty of it. Um, you know, at the Forest Refuge, you've got your own room. It's real quiet. You can't hear it. I mean, there's nothing to bother you. And it's amazing to see how much you suffer. <laughs> you know? You're just sitting in a room. Nobody's messing with you. They're feeding you. Everybody around is full of like, love and supporting you. And you're just in hell. And, I, and there's a story, some of you have heard this, that Ajahn uh, Amaro said. It's been, the story's been recounted many times, but it's so good. Where When they first built, built Spirit Rock, 
he had made some comment. I wasn't there. I've just heard the story where um, apparently he said something like, well, you know, it's so nice here that now um, people are going to suffer more because they're actually, they're going to, they're no longer going to be able to blame their suffering on external circumstances. <laughs> and they're going to have to really come to see it's their own minds. So we're kind of laughing and joking about it, but really um, it's a real shift when we just start to know rather than, just, but we have to have enough mindfulness and wakefulness, which is you know, why we're really practicing to have that presence when it happens because our automatic tendency is going to be, you know, as soon as a difficulty comes up, you know, it's going to be, you know, not this, not this, no, not this, and we're going to just try to push it away. That's just deeply conditioned in us, right? So just to know that, right? Just to know, yeah, it, that is kind of part of being a human being. And then, to the, I just want to say this again, if the experience is too much for us, then it's too much for us. And we're not going to be able to work like that with it. And just to say, oh, well, there, oh, yes, there's suffering arising and there's the unpleasantness and I see the reaction of the mind. And we, you know, we're not going to be able to work with it like that. It's going to pick us up. It's going to throw us down. It's going to stomp all over us. You know? And if you find that the best you can do is like curled up on your living room floor for three days in pain, well, then, you know, I don't know what it's time to whatever you do, you know, get out the whatever, the chocolate ice cream and, and an old movie, or I don't know, you know. You, you just get through. And if it's within the realm where we can work, then we work, and then slowly that just moves out. And hopefully we don't set ourselves up for some unrealistic ideal of how we're supposed to be. And more it's awakening to just how it actually is. That's the key. And then... Where's the time to bring in the compassion? When's the time for the wisdom and the clear seeing? And just bring in all these different pieces depending on what's needed in the moment. I think I'll just stop there. So we can just open it up if anyone has any, anything you'd like to share or it could be questions, comments, anything. We can just use this microphone so everyone can hear. Yeah. Let me know what you need. Is it on? I just wanted to say thank you because what I just got for myself was I had the idea that freedom from suffering meant that I would never suffer again. Mm -hmm. And it was like, well, but isn't that what being human is about? So what I get is that I will suffer but I will be able to stay present with it and yeah. ride through the waves in some places and in some places I won't. So right. thank you. Yeah. Get real gift. I'm not sure how yeah. it's going to shift things for me. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. And that's real important. That, and what you're, but what you're talking about is when you're not suffering, that is a freedom for suffer from suffering. But it's a conditional or dependent freedom. It's dependent on not having that suffering come back. And it's a d- whole different level of freedom from suffering that you're pointing to. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. And That's so. An acceptance of my suffering when it's throwing me on the ground and stomping yeah, on yeah. me. Like just, yeah, just a whole bunch of freedom around it. So yeah, thank you. yeah.
So thank you so much. That was a great sharing. And so spontaneous. It was wonderful to just kind of experience it as it bubbled out of you. <laughs> uh, the story that I love that uh, illustrates what you're talking about is uh, the famous Indian yogi Milarepa who uh, spent lots of years in a cave. And, uh, and he's well known for uh, inviting his demons in for tea. So when the demons arrive, he says, oh, yes, come sit down. Let us chat. The equanimity of being present with the terror and the fear. So, yeah, thanks. I just wanted to add my own personal um, perspective on this. For the last, um, since September 4th until last Friday, I was having a personal retreat at home and um, for the first two weeks, you know, uh, part of the time I was really, really cold and other parts it was really different kinds of pain, but really intense and it was really difficult. I, th- I think you probably heard it in my bell ringing. Um, <laughs> and I, I appreciate any meta that was coming my way. Um, but I really missed the support that comes from um, group retreats and the teachers, uh, uh, you know, availability to be there it was... Uh, even though I, you know, I was in the comfort of my own home and you know the food that I'm used to and things like that, um, and the love of my husband and and so forth, um, I really find that being on retreat in a group there's a uh, a kind of a support. And what, one of the things I love about sitting here is there's um, something we, you know, something that happens that seems, you know, personally to me seems like we're helping each other. Um, without even speaking, um, and it's just a really lovely thing that that I experience being here. So, just an, an acknowledgement and a bow to what I get from you. <laughs> Thanks for bringing up this topic yeah. today. Suffering is really interesting. I feel like when I'm suffering, there must be somebody somewhere in this world who can save me from suffering. <laughs> <laughs> I feel it's unfair. There should be somebody there who knows more than I do should be able to save me. And I just go through suffering with that. Right. I think I'd we all do for probably. somebody to save me. Yeah. <laughs> hmm? You know, maybe we all do. I don't know. <laughs> you know, how can, what can save me from this? What, how can I be saved all the time? Why do I have to go through this? This is my biggest challenge. I go looking for the teachers. I said, can you help me out? <laughs> <laughs> Is this as natural or is it just me? Well, I don't know, but I would just say that, you know, um, I've said this here a number of times before that, uh, you know, that we, you know, we don't need the Buddha to tell us about suffering because we're all, we know all about it. We're experts, right? We know about suffering. What we're not experts on is what to do about it. And so all of us, and that is the teaching, you know, the, the, the Buddha said he taught dukkha, so we'll say suffering, and the end of suffering. You know, it was a down to earth. He taught these down to earth teachings of conventional reality that could bring us to direct experience of the unconditioned. Right. So he just made it very down to earth for suffering, the end of suffering. So the question is not yes, we all want to get out of suffering, but it's just like what's the way and you know, on the one, there's sort of the two aspects. One is, to the extent we can fix it, we want to fix it. And 
if that's our only approach, then we're in trouble for, the, for, for all the parts that we can't fix. And so this whole other piece that we're adding in, we're not throwing away the part that says fix it, right? If we can. You know, if someone's hungry, you don't say to them, well, you know, um, the problem here, it's not that I know you haven't had anything to eat for four days or water and you're here in the convention center down in Los Angeles and it's a hellhole. No, no. The problem is, is that you're cl- clinging. And no, you wouldn't do that. What do you do? You give them food. You give them water. They need safety. They need shelter. So you fix it if you can. And then the bigger picture also is, is how do we learn to widen that circle that can contain more and more of both the pleasant and unpleasant experience and still not lose that deep place of well-being in our place. So it, so we, it's not so de- everything's not so dependent on, on uh, the situation. So there's both parts, I think. Thank you for your talk. I, uh, I think it touches on a, on a key question that Buddhist practitioners have. So what then is the end of suffering? You're asking me? <laughs> you mentioned it many ago. <laughs> well, I mean, I appreciate that um, you would think I would know the answer. <laughs> I haven't come to the end of suffering, but I would I would say it. Let me just say it this way. So I don't know what the mind of a Buddha is. I don't know, or an arhat, or whatever terms you like to use. What that must be. So I tend to think of it in a in a different way. I don't myself. I don't use the word enlightenment, for example. But I do, but I, because, you know, I get all these connotations about, and you didn't use that, I understand, but I'm just saying. But I tend to think more in terms, I do know this, that the more I can grow in mindful awareness, the, the less I'm acting out of reactivity, the, the wider that circle gets that can really be present with, you know, we always say it's such a cliche, being with things as they are. It's a cliche because cliche it's, it's, there's so much truth there. The more I can grow in loving kindness and compassion and all of these different things, I, I suffer less. And probably, I'm assuming you and all of us can see that, you know, we can see that, that it, here and now we can see the fruits of, of the Dharma. And, and we don't have to wait for some ultimate. So we can see that, that it do, we can grow in peace and happiness. We can learn to live and act in ways that create less suffering for ourselves and others and more peace and happiness for ourselves and others. And for me, I have to kind of leave it at that and know that just from what I have seen, it, 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 it creates a lot of confidence in what might be possible and so, you know, we, we, then we, we just move on forward. And then where the end of that is, I don't know. That's the best I know to say about it. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. 
So please, Inez, and then we'll and then we'll just and then we'll end after you. Um, and for me, there's um, I, it's really helpful to differentiate between pain and suffering. Um, and I can I can easily you know the Buddha had pain, you know at the end of his life he, you know he there are a lot of there are times where he had to lay down because of his low back pain he couldn't uh, give a talk, and um, and I pretty much assume he wasn't suffering, and um, and I think that that's um, I really like uh, one of uh, the quotes that I really like from Shinzen Yang, um, he defines suffering as um, Pain times resistance. Yeah. yeah, that's a great. That's great. Thank you. Okay. So then we'll just take a few minutes to end. We have about five minutes left, and I would like to offer up. I don't know what. Do people normally end with a little meta loving kindness at the end? Pretty much. There's no particular way. Well, I usually end with a little meta at the end, but I'd like to maybe little make a shift here, just because um, there's other, there's this you know these list of what I call the Brahma Viharas, right? These divine abodes of loving kindness, compassion, happiness at the happiness of others, and equanimity. And you can do uh, practices around all of them. So I thought some of you we always tend to focus on the meta, the loving kindness, so much. And you may have heard some practices around compassion, but many people never have done any. And just because we're talking around like working with suffering, I thought we could just do the same thing as a metta, but maybe do it a, shift it a little for some compassion. And then, and then you can see if it's something you'd like to use in your own practice. So I invite you to um, get comfortable. And if your awareness has been out in the room, in the, in the concepts, in the discussion, then to bring your attention back, connecting back in, in with the body, the heart, the mind, just connecting in with whatever the experience is. And then from that place, you can bring to mind, if you have some, do not pick the, the strongest or most difficult thing, if, if, you can, if you have a choice here. But to bring something to mind that maybe is an area that is a difficulty, or that you've had some degree of suffering around in your own life. And then first, just to notice the feeling, you know, when, when that, when thinking of that, you know, what comes up. So to keep the mindfulness, there might be body sensations, might trigger a string of thoughts or emotions, <coughs> perhaps not. And then from that place, you can actually start to send, just like we do with metta, you can also start to send some compassion to yourself. And it can be a a sense or a feeling, but it also can be a thought or a wish or a prayer. Um, and we can use some of these phrases if they're useful. So I'll just suggest a few of the standard phrases that we often use and see if any of those, or you could make up your own phrases. So while holding awareness of this, 
difficulty, you could repeat to yourself, um, um, you know, may I find peace in this suffering? Or may I come to an end of this suffering? You could say, you know, I care about this suffering. The suffering matters. And you could just repeat one or more of those phrases. And in your own practice, you could, you know, if you did nothing but compassion practice for yourself, I mean, that would be very, very powerful practice. But since we don't have a lot of time, we can now, you could stay with that. Or if you'd like, you can shift your awareness and let it expand out. And it could expand to all of us together in the Dharma Hall here together, or out into the community, to the world. And... Bring, you know, something of suffering can come to your mind. It could be from the hurricane. It could be from, you know, at least 18,000 dead in this uh, earthquake in Pakistan yesterday. Or there's so many places of pain and suffering. And in the same way, you could just radiate a sense or using some of the phrases, you know, You know, may you come to an end of this suffering. You know, may you find peace in this suffering. I see your suffering. And then finally, we'll just take just a few moments to do a sharing of merit and to reflect that um, how we've used our time wisely together this morning, that we could have done anything, but we all chose to come and practice meditate, reflect on Dharma teachings. And so anytime, uh, anytime we work to cultivate wisdom, kindness, and compassion, it's of great benefit to ourselves and others. And so we can... Um, we can wish um, that if there's any goodness or merit obtained from our time together this morning, that it may it be for the deep well-being, welfare, happiness, liberation of all beings. May all beings be peaceful, 
happy and may all beings come to an end of suffering. Thank you. I hope you all have a good morning.